0: Good morning. Um, for those of you that don't know me, um, I am Tyler and I am one of the pastors here. And we are so grateful to have you at Safe Haven this morning. Um, if you can, go on ahead and grab your Bible and open up to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we're going to find ourselves in the text this morning. And so, if you've been here the last three weeks, you know this is our final week in our mental health series. And so, um, the last three weeks we've been looking at that idea and Troy opened it up with us talking about and reminding us of who we really are in Christ. That's the basis for us when it comes to mental health. We need to know who we are to properly function within ourselves. And so he looked at um, we don't have to fear because we're redeemed, that we won't have to fear because we're called, and we don't have to fear because we are ultimately His. And so in the last two weeks... Uh, we brought in Dr. Al Saunders um, from Wellspring up in Birmingham, and he gave us the clinical side of anxiety and depression. And so if you weren't here for that, I would highly encourage you to go listen to that. All that's online. Um, and so today, my goal is for us to look at practical, practical means of pushing forward and what does that look like in mental health? How do we practically pursue Mental health. And so I hope that you'll walk away encouraged this morning. Um, and so there's that. So I want to start off with this quote by Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he says this in his book, Living by the Book. He said, Observation plus interpretation without application equals ab- abortion. I'm going to read that again because that's, that's powerful. Observation plus interpretation without application equals abortion. He goes on to say, every time we observe and interpret but fail to apply, we perform an abortion on the scriptures in the terms of their purpose. And he says, the Bible in itself was not written to satisfy our curiosity, but to transform our life. And so, my hope is. As we've been coming here week after week to dig into the, we've observed what mental health looks like. We've looked at a clinical psychologist as to what it is and, and how, how can we deal with these things. I hope that as we come and we fill our minds with information and we observe and we interpret that we would not leave unchanged. The crux of it all is how do we apply this to our lives? Um, And our goal through this series has has been by God's grace that we become face-to-face with who Christ is and in reality be transformed, not to just gain more head knowledge, um, but rather as we hear, we practice, and we grow in God's grace. So that brings us to Philippians chapter 4. It'll be on the screen, um, and you can follow along with me in the text. I'm going to read it for us real quick, and then we'll dive in. Philippians 4 verses 1 through 9, it says this. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored, beside, labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And the, the Lord is at hand. If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The Word of God for the people of God. And so, just a little bit of context about Philippians, uh, the, the church at Philippi that you need to know. Um, I don't have a ton of time, so I'll just hit you with two quick things. Contextually, the church at Philippi was a great church. It was a healthy church. We're not talking about the church in Corinth like Christians going wild over there. That's not that's not what we were talking about with the Philippians. Um the Philippian the Philippian church was overwhelmingly healthy. Um but even great churches, and I think what we see today in this text is even great churches full of wonderful believers still deal with sin, still deal with mental. (laughs) <laughs> still deal with mental struggles. Um, and so Paul is writing this letter to them from prison for preaching the gospel, trying to shepherd their hearts and give them practical instructions on how to endure and how to push forward in suffering and having joy in the midst of trial. And so that's the whole premise of the book of Philippians. And so four things I want us to look at This morning, as we pursue mental health, four quick uh, the first is an encouragement, and then he gives us three exhortations. So, the first is this for in pursuing mental health, this is the first thing I think we can see we can endure in the Lord. Look at how he starts it. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. And so, stand firm. Looking back on all that he said about who Christ is in chapter, the first three chapters, who Christ is, what he's accomplished accomplished for us, the citizenship that he's bought for us in heaven. He's purchased our heavenly citizenship, he's changed our narratives, he's called us, he's redeemed us. We are his, therefore we can stand firm. That's an encouragement, church. Paul's encouraging us because of who God is pressed on in these things. The power in which that we press forward, though, is not our own. So lest we think we can come and hear these practical things about mental health and we can go do these things, do X, Y, and Z and press forward and everything's going to be hunky-dory, Paul says that's not the case. That is not the case. Um, Communities is a grace. Counselors are a grace. Medicines are a grace. But we cannot confuse graces with the grace giver. That's the first thing I, he starts it off, and I think that's a huge point to make. Notice he doesn't say, hey, go stand firm, go be tough, go figure it out, you go make it work, church. It's not what he says. It says, the means by which we persevere is the Lord. He's the the grace giver. And this is a common theme that he goes on. Verse 2, agree in the Lord. Um, Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 7, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So the bedrock of transformation Paul is getting at is the Lord. Don't miss that. If you miss that, you miss the whole point. And so... Point of application. I'm going to go straight into it for the unbeliever. Unbeliever, if you've been coming the last three weeks and hearing these practical things of this is what anxiety is, this is what depression is, this is who um, believers are in Christ, the, your point of application is we cannot endure outside of Christ. We can't push forward. We, you have no hope. Because if it's left to you, it's left to your abilities to clean yourself up and figure it out. And so what you need is Christ. You need Jesus. You need the substitutionary work, the the Christ who entered into humanity, who, who became your sin, became your brokenness, who was crushed on your behalf and didn't stay dead, but three days later rose from the grave, defeating sin, defeating death, and now rules and reigns as king. And so that gives us hope. We don't worship a dead Jesus. We worship a ruling and reigning king. And so that gives us hope, unbeliever. And so believer... Our strength isn't found in doing more and trying harder. If you walk away this morning with, oh, i got to do these things, i got to try harder, i got to clean myself up, you've missed it. It's not found in your ability to do more and try harder. It's standing firm in your union with Christ, and your strength is propelled forward in your communion with Him. And that's what we're going to see through these practical exhortations. So the first thing I wanted you to be encouraged in is the fact that we can endure in Christ. So, three practical exhortations. Continue on with me in verses two through four, or two through five. The the second thing I think we see is this: we should engage one another in the Lord. So Paul mentions these two women, Euodia and I don't know if I'm saying that right. Synthetica, Syntica, Syntica, maybe. Yeah, we're gonna Syntiki. We're gonna roll with that. Um, So. Here's the the awkward thing about this passage in verses 2 through 5. The awkward thing is these two women um, were in some sort of disagreement with one another. And Paul instructs them that they need to be unified in community. He's pushing the value of the church body, pushing the value of being united in community. Now the awkward part about it is if you know how these letters would work in, uh, in the first century, Paul would write these letters and like I'm doing right now, it would have been read corporately. And so it would have been like, um, we'll just use Eric and Brandon for example. I in church, I entreat to you, Brandon and Eric. They got a bunch of issues that they need to work out. So I'm going to entrust them to you to fix that. Okay. You see how this is super awkward. That's what I'm talking. This is how that would have gone down. But in saying that, Paul doesn't say these things to throw these two women under the bus. He says these things because he knows the power of gospel community. He knows the value of brothers and sisters leaning in together. And so you need other believers, church, and believers need you. That's just true, man. And so, I mean, think about it. God Himself, the doctrine of the Trinity, teaches us that the Father, Son, and Spirit exist in a perfect union and community with one another. If God himself dwells in community, what makes us think that we don't need it? And so, Paul tells us he goes on in Galatians. He says this phenomenal thing in Galatians chapter 6 verse 2. He says, "Hey church, do you want to fulfill the law of Christ?" And any believer is going to be like, well, heck yeah, I want to fulfill the law of Christ. Sign me up for that. How do I do that, Paul? How do I fulfill the law of Christ? How do I display the love of Christ, His excellency, His His riches, His, His majesty, His beauty to a world who is watching? How do you do that, Paul? Bear one another's burdens. That's what he says. That's powerful, man. You want to fulfill the law of Christ? Bear one another's burdens. Community is a powerful apologetic to a lost and confused world. It's powerful, man. Why? Because our world is so individualistic. Our our culture teaches it's about me, myself, and I, and how can I advance myself? How can I push myself forward? How can I go put myself above others? And the metrics of the kingdom of God is quite the opposite. It says, how can you come along with the brother and sister and lift them up? see the difference? The metrics of the kingdom of God is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the next thing he says? Love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love your neighbor in isolation. It just doesn't happen. And so my question, practically, are you plugged into gospel community, church? Are you plugged into a group of believers who are bearing your burdens and you're bearing other people's burdens? And you know, excuses are easy to come by. Man, I just don't have time. You know, we, we we make time for what we value. Or I get my community at the ballpark. That's awesome. If you're diving into the riches of the gospel, are you diving into the riches of the gospel at the ballpark? Or are you using your hobby horse as a justification for getting out of what the Lord's called you to do? And I don't say that to be a jerk or pompous or whatever. I say that as trying to shepherd, being a shepherd who cares for the church. You need this. The Lord Himself values it. And I say it to say because I can't tell you how many times in my own living room and many of your living rooms I've sat in and watched the Lord minister through His people, through community. When me and my wife were walking through infertility, and I told this to the CG on ramp the other week, we were walking through infertility like I just didn't know what to say to her, man. Like we walked through three and a half years of this, and I was like, at the at one point, I was just like, "Look, it's science. We're not going to have a baby." Probably not what she needed to hear, you know. Like she, that's not encouraging for her. Like, and, and I just remember my community coming around us in my living room, weeping over us pleading with the lord to give us a child and if not his will be done and our joy be complete immense value in the in the, in gospel community church because you might be able to speak something into my wife that i can't and so it's huge and it's, it's been time and time again played out. Folks gathering around others, interceding for one another, encouraging one another. Whether it's celebrating the announcement of a birth, or 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 crying and weeping over a miscarriage, whether it be celebrating someone's job promotion, or or praying over someone who lost a loved one. Sometimes these conversations are hard. Like in this specific case with Euodia and Cintike. Like sometimes it's hard conversations, but in all cases, the Spirit empowers us and uses us to minister to one another. And I think that's what Paul wants us to see. And so this leads us by God's grace to rejoice. And he says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Notice what Paul doesn't say there. He doesn't say rejoice when circumstances are going just the way you want them to do. He says to rejoice in the Lord always. Why does he say that? Why strategic language from Paul like that? Because our joy comes from our union with Christ, not our life circumstances. Life circumstances are going to punch you in the face 10 out of 10 times. And if your joy is wrapped up into, your your rejoicing wrapped up into what it looks like, if it comes out on your way, you're going to be perpetually disappointed. And Paul says your joy is not in the absence of trial in our lives. It's knowing that Christ is present with you in your trials. And so it's really Romans 8, 28, man. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things there means all things. The good, the bad. And ugly. And so we rejoice in the fact that we will endure in Christ because of who he is and what he's done, not in when we just get the warm fuzzies, right? Like we all want the warm fuzzies. Like when Wally Mack, Wally Mack is the guru of the warm fuzzies. Like I, When I used to work with students, he, I'd get him to come speak at stuff and give out a little, literally a little warm fuzzy, and it made me feel awesome. But if my feelings are dependent on warm fuzzies, it's not going to work out well for me. Um, the grace of community pushes us towards Christ's presence in our rhythms in a real and tangible ways. It's through sharing meals. It's through sharing our stories. It's through bearing one another's sin. And it's through celebration that we experience rejoicing in the Lord. So, we need community, Paul says. Number three, we can entreat in the Lord. We can and we should entreat in the Lord. Verses 6 and 7. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, now before we ever even get into this, I can already tell your brain's like, oh boy, here we go. He's going to tell me how my prayer life's cruddy and it's horrible. Here we go. Don't go there. Don't go there. We can all grow in prayer. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can all definitely grow in prayer, me being the chief one. But Paul does tell us here, when anxiety comes knocking, the first place we should stop is with, the, with prayer in the Lord. It's the first place we should stop, man. Proverbs twelve twenty five tells us this. It says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. It's a picture of like a heavy backpack, like a, a pack. You're, you're hiking, like uh, Austin and Allie just went out to Montana. They carry these heavy packs on their back and walking and walking and walking. It's pretty light at the get-go, but after you're like five miles in that bad boy, that 30-pound pack starts to feel like a camel on your back, right? And so... That's what Paul's getting at here. This anxiety, it weighs us down. Our anxiety is crippling. And if some of you are honest with yourself, you may question, can I really relieve anxiety through prayer and experience the Lord's peace through that? And Paul says, yeah, absolutely. You sure can. John Piper defines uh, unhealthy anxiety this way. He defines it as an intense desire for something accompanied by a fear of the consequences of not receiving it. I'm going to read that again. Unhealthy anxiety, this is John Piper. An intense desire for something accompanied by a fear of the consequences of not receiving it. So this desire usually comes for us in the form of one or two ways. It's in the, it's in the form of what we really value, whether it be uh, financial, whether it be a job promotion, um, uh, or just our vocation in general. Like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I, I, need, to, I need clear direction on that. Um, or relational, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your kids, um, whether it's uh, trying to figure out what college I'm trying to go to, um, landing this job, whatever. So this type of anxiety, Paul tells us, this unhealthy anxiety is sin in our lives. This this constant worrying and and, and chewing over these things. What am I supposed to do in my life? How are my kids going to turn out? Who am I going to marry? How am I going to deal with who I'm married to? Might look a little bit different for you, married person. Um, So... And Paul instructs us that that's sin because it's living as though God is non-existent. And it's living as though we don't believe that He is sovereign. In a real way, that type of anxiety is a functional atheism. It's believing that He doesn't even exist. And I've been there before, man, with health stuff. Like, I'm all about sovereignty until it hits home, (laughs) you know? Just being transparent. Um, John Piper says this again. He goes on. He said God is always doing 10,000 things in our lives and we may be aware of 3 of them. We spend our lives freaking out and worrying about those 3 things. And our anxiety cripples us. And then we start and when we start to believe the lies, God's holding back on you. It's really completely up to you to get your wayward kid back in with Christ. It's really, it's really on your shoulders. We bind to those lies and our anxiety crushes us. So what do we do with this anxiety when we experience it? There's two things you can do. You can do a cultural way or you can do a biblical way. cultural way kind of looks like this. In a cultural sage of our time... Marshall Mathers III, also known as the Real Slim Shady, says it this way. you got to lose yourself in the music, the moment. And now all of you are singing the song in your head. That's really true for our culture. you got to lose yourself. you got to empty yourself. Whether it be through the bottle, whether it be through um, vegging out, whether it be through yoga, whether it be through whatever, you got to empty your mind. you got to empty yourself. That's how you relieve, get relief from this anxiety. But Paul's way, the biblical way, is quite the opposite. Paul says a biblical antidote for anxiety is to fill yourself. Fill yourself with the presence of the Lord through prayer and through His Word. So Paul tells us to flood the Lord with prayer. And maybe you're thinking, dude... I don't even know, like whenever I'm praying, it doesn't even feel like it's making out of my bedroom ceiling, much less the throne of God. I just want to encourage you this morning, man. Let me encourage you with this. Psalm 145 tells us this, that God is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. Romans 8.34 tells us this about the Son. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is what? Interceding for us. Romans 8.26 talks about the Spirit in this way. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For when we do not know what to pray for as we ought, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Church, did you know our prayer life is a Trinitarian explosion of divine grace? That's what the Scriptures teaches us. When you don't know what to pray, when you don't even know what, if, if it's even making sense, the Word promises us throughout its pages that the Godhead is meeting with us in a very real, in a very present way. And so God didn't create the universe and just say, all right, Figure it out. You got this like a toy. winding it up and sending it on its way. That's not how He operates, man. He's very much involved with His creation. He provides for His creation. He is for us. I hope that encourages you, man. 1 Peter 5, verse 7 says this. this. is a promise. Cast all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God cares for you? It's not just theory. That's reality. And So, a lot of times in our prayerlessness, i want to illustrate it this way. Me and my sister, uh, Beth, many of y'all know her. We grew up at my mama's house. She used to keep us as kids. And we would go back in mama's bedroom as she was watching her uh, days of our lives, um, midday. And we would turn on the TV to a phenomenal TV show called The Joy of Painting with Bob Ross. Can you all relate? And so, I don't know what it is about that magical fro and the cadence of his soothing voice, but I would just be zoned in. It would suck us in. And we'd just be like, just veg out. You know, make my happy tree, you know, make my cute little lush river. And my favorite, we don't make mistakes. We just make happy accidents, right? And so a lot of the times in our prayerlessness, we attempt to take the paintbrush and the canvas of our lives. I'm just going to paint my wayward child and I'm going to fix that over here. I don't know who I'm going to marry. I really want to be married, Lord. I'll just, let me just take that. I'm going to paint my spouse over here. What he, he better look like this. She better look like this. I'm going to paint that right there. And then I'm going to, oh, my job. I can't believe that jerk got that promotion over me. I'm going to paint that right there. <laughs> and by the time we're done, it looks like Picasso on LSD has taken control of the canvas of our lives. I say that to say this. You were never meant to be the artist. You weren't created to be the artist. And in our prayer, we meet with the artist and say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing in the here and now. I don't know what you're you're painting with this anxiety I'm feeling, with these depressive thoughts. I don't know what you're doing, but I can rest assured that at the end of the day, it's going to be beautiful. And the canvas of my life is going to be a masterpiece to you. Because I know that you ultimately care for me and you're ultimately about your glory and my good. And so draw confidently to the Lord in prayer. Even if all you can do is mumble, He is faithful to meet with you. Draw near and listen. James 4.8, one of my favorite promises in all of Scripture. Draw near to me and the Lord promises what? I'll draw near to you. That's good, man. Peace dwells in proximity. It dwells within His presence. And that's the means by which He meets with us. And lastly, I want us to see this. In pursuing mental health, we can enjoy the Lord. Verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any... I'm sorry, I got off. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And the last thing he says, man, church, enjoy the Lord. Enjoy His presence. There is no limit on things that are good for you. There is no limit on whatever is lovely and commendable and just and honorable and true and pure. There is no limit on what you can fill yourself with those things. And so Paul tells us, and he challenges challenges us with what we think about. He's hitting us in our thoughts. So for us to be molded into the image of Jesus, like Paul tells us in Romans 12, we have to be molded and we have to have a renewed mind. And He's given us His Word to do that just, just that thing. Psalm 1, the very first psalm, it starts off with this. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who, <clears throat> who meditates on it day and night. That's the first thing the psalms kicks off with. Um, I think about David in Psalm 139. David prays for the Lord to examine His thoughts. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And David knew that transformation, the basis of transformation, was the reorientation of how we think. What are you filling your mind with? Garbage in, garbage out. What do we fill our minds with? I'm not going to say much more on this point except for this. Do you know who is pure? Do you know who is lovely? Do you know who is commendable? Do you know who is worthy of all praise? King Jesus. He is all of those things. And Paul says, you want peace? You want to experience relief? You want joy? Meet with Him. Fill your mind with the riches of who He is and practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Hope that's encouraging for you. Ben, you can go on ahead and be coming back up here. So... Man, I hope that you don't walk away <laughs> discouraged, thinking, oh, I've got I to fix my prayer life, I've got to get into the Word more. Spiritual disciplines are not a duty. They are a delight for the believer that ushers us into His presence. Delight in Him. I want to close it out with this. Matthew chapter 8 opens up with a story about Jesus and a leper. For you to understand the power of this narrative that happens in Matthew, you have to know the cultural understanding of leprosy in, um, in ancient Israel. Leprosy in ancient Israel was one of the most dreaded diseases you could possibly get. Um, it's kind of like modern-day AIDS or HIV for us. Um, it's a very contagious skin disease that not only affects the skin, how it smells, how it looks, its color, but also it slowly deteriorated your nervous system. It would cut off the nerve endings in your fingers and your toes, so lepers, would, they couldn't feel the heat of a flame, they couldn't feel the sharpness of a blade, they couldn't feel the weight of an object. So often they would cut the fingers off, that have nubs as toes and fingers is gross, um, there was no cure for this. And so therefore, lepers um, they were they were separated because of this. But for a Jew, though, it was even more hardcore. To be a Jewish leper, you can go read about in Leviticus and Numbers whenever you got some free time. Um, there was a whole nother level to this disease. The disease with it brought separateness. It caused a chasm between them and society. Lepers had to wear torn clothing. They had to wear their hair frazzled. And they had to walk around and cover their mouths. And they would have to call out, Unclean! I'm unclean! Please stay away! I'm unclean! And they were banished to leper colonies to live. And they were barred from temple worship because of their disease. And so now that you know that, this leper comes down off this hill and approaches Jesus... And the text tells us that there was a great crowd surrounded around them. So like these people know what's going on here. Like This is a big deal. And this leper approaches Jesus and he kneels down before him and he says, Lord, if you will, will you make me clean? So what does Jesus do now? This crowd's watching how he's going to respond to this. Does he say, Ugh, you, I am Jesus. I am pure. Please stay away from me. Don't get near me. Keep your distance. I will talk to you from over there. No, he does. He he kneels down, this leper, this leper, and, and and his vulnerability and all that he had, he knelt down and said, Lord, will you heal me? And he said, Jesus, phenomenal, huge moment. Reaches down and he touches him. And he says, I will be clean. This huge moment. This man in his poverty of spirit came up to the one who he knew could only offer him joy and peace. And Jesus said, yeah, I'll heal you. I'll touch you. And I say all that to say this. I've sat down with many of you who have been walking through depression, anxiety. And a common theme always recurs. Something along these lines. I feel like I'm an outsider. No one understands what it's like, that what I'm dealing with. I, I can't go to people. I can't, I can't deal with this or this. I feel like I'm too much of a mess to even approach the Lord. Matthew chapter 8 says, no, I like that. He's not trying to give you the cold shoulder in His kindness. He goes for the warm. Embrace, And the beauty of the gospel is Jesus doesn't look at your mess from a distance. (laughs) He dumpster dives into the wreckage of your life and transforms you from within. So I want to close out with this quote from Mike Iaconelli, one of my favorite pastor theologians. He says this, if you're dealing with anxiety, you're dealing with depression, you don't feel like you're worthy to approach Him, I want to lurch forward toward Jesus where the unwelcome receive welcome and the unqualified get qualified. I want to hear Jesus tell me that I can dance when everyone else says that I can't. I want to hear Jesus walk over and whisper to this disabled, messy Christian, do you want to dance? Are we going to drop the ball in pursuing mental health? Are we going to step on His toes and screw it all up? Yeah, yeah we are. But that doesn't rob the joy of the King dancing with His people. Let's dance with Him through His Word, through prayer, through community, and the various graces that He's granted to us. Let's pray. And so King Jesus... thinking through this text, I see how unqualified I am. I see how broken I am. I see how unworthy I am. But the reality is that as a good king, you love and you care for your people. You walk over and you, and you meet us where we're at. You don't expect us to clean ourselves up. You don't expect us to get ourselves together. You walk into our mess And you meet with us there and you say, I will cleanse you. What a grace. And so, Lord, if there's anyone in this room, if there's an unbeliever who hasn't experienced that that cleansing, Lord, that you would meet with them today. That you would reveal to them their sin and their brokenness and their great need for you. That you would bring ultimate healing. And Lord, if there's a believer in here that is walking through a season of anxiety or depression, They don't feel like they're worthy. They don't feel like like you want to meet with them. Lord, would you remind them this morning that you want to dance with them? That you want to meet with them in prayer? You want to meet with them in your word? Would you move in our midst this morning? Pray all these things in Jesus' name.